The following audio is from Shiloh Presbyterian Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. More information about Shiloh Presbyterian Church is available at shilohopc.org. Please remain standing for the reading of God's Word. We're going to read Ephesians chapter 1, and we'll read the first six verses. Ephesians chapter 1, verses 1 to 6. Let's hear the Word of God. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. In love he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will, to the praise of his glorious grace, with which he has blessed us in the Beloved. Amen. Thanks be to God for his word. Let's pray. We ask now, Almighty God, that you'd be pleased to open your word unto us so that your word might fill us with wonder and love and praise at the remarkable love that has been set upon us. Fill our hearts, Lord God, with love for you, love for each other, and a zeal to serve you well. For we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. Well, we begin this evening, the first of three sermons on verses 3 to verse 14, uh, where considering the work of redemption as it is ascribed to Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. If you were to read this section in the Greek from verse 3 all the way down to the end of verse 14, it's simply one long sentence extolling the virtues and glories of the gracious triune salvation that is ours. Broadly speaking, verses 3 to 6 ascribe praise to the Father for his work of salvation. Verses 7 to 12 ascribe praise to the Son for his work in salvation. And verses 13 and 14, broadly speaking, ascribe praise to the Spirit. But we ought not make the mistake, as we saw last week and we saw this morning, We ought not make the mistake of thinking there's a nice and neat demarcation between the work of Father, Son, and Spirit as if never the three work together. In fact, what we see in this text is the very opposite. While we see in verses 3 to 6, praise to the Father, we read these words in verse 3, that the Father chose us in Christ. When we get to verse 13 and 14, we read that as we believed in Christ, we were sealed with the Spirit. It's just not possible to divide the work of Father, Son, and Spirit, even though we see, broadly speaking, uh, certain works ascribed to each person of the triune God. What we derive from this, then, is, is not just teaching about what Father principally does or the Son or the Spirit principally do. What's going on here is Paul is describing for us and thus calling us, calling you as Christians, into 
the fellowship of triune salvation. He's calling you into the devotion of triune salvation. He's going to trace out for us the contours of our wonderful, glorious, gracious triune salvation and call us into the wonder, the praise, and the glory of this most amazing salvation. For Paul, theology always leads to doxology. That is, what he believes leads him to praise and to worship. And there's a wonderful symmetry to our passage this evening. Verse 3, perhaps you noticed it, verse 3, there's Paul's praise to the Father for blessing us in Christ. In verse 6, we have precisely the same thing. Paul's praise to the Father for blessing us in the Beloved. And then in verse 4 and in verse 5, we've got the reasons why Paul begins to praise the Father. Verse 4 is the reason of election. Verse 5, the reason of predestination. So we have worship in verse 3, election, verse 4, predestination, verse 5, and worship, verse 6. That's what's before us this evening. Praise to the Father for the great work of salvation. The first thing Paul does is praise the Father there in verse 3 for the blessings that we have in Christ Jesus. I've mentioned that symmetry that worship opens and closes these verses, and found there in the middle are the reasons for Paul's blessing of God. And we immediately see, by point of application to ourselves, that Paul is providing us with a pattern or a paradigm for our own worship, for our own thought, our own meditation, yes, even our own prayer lives. Paul starts, he bookends this section with worship. Blessed be God, he says. Verse 3, blessed be God, he says again in verse 6. And yet in the middle, there's these really rich, deep theological reasons why Paul is blessing the Father. That's the shape of how we should think. Worship should be our first and last, but with good, deep reasons for that worship. Let's look what Paul says here. There's a lot that he says, and I'll admit we're taking it at a fairly high level and will be relatively brief. Verse 3 is comprised of these ideas. There's a blessing to the Father, and we find that the sphere of that blessing is found in Christ. There's the scope of the blessing, every blessing. There's the, sorry, every blessing. Yes, there's the environment of the blessing. Where is it? It's in the heavenly places. There's four elements to this praise alone in verse three that we see. Four elements of detailed, deep, theological praise to God. In other words, it's not empty, friends. It's not repeating empty and endless phrases to God. There's real genuine substance to God's praise as there is real genuine substance to our salvation. The first thing we see is praise to God. Paul says, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be his name. Whenever I read men blessing God, as we do, it it, it creates in me a strange sort of sense. Men 
blessing God who is altogether blessed in and of himself. It's almost superfluous, isn't it? He is blessed in and of himself, and yet here is Paul and here have we been blessing his holy name. We see here great condescension from our Father in heaven who allows us sinners to enter into a relationship where we might bless him for his goodness to us. We who need his blessing to render blessing to him, he gives us that blessing so we can bless him. And yet the blessing that we give to God, is it not also ministry in our own souls? When we praise the Lord in in hymns and praise, when Paul praises the Lord now, blessed be God, is that not ministering to our own souls? Yes, we're worshiping God. We're ascribing glory to him. We're saying something about him. But oh, how good it is for us. It is good to praise the Lord. It is good for us to ascribe to him glory. It's our greatest duty, but it should also be our greatest delight to give this praise to God. Notice Paul is blessing the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. There's profound depth in here, which we'll seek to unpack in weeks to come. One thing we're going to see in in this verse and in the rest of the book is the in-Christness of the Christian life, the idea of union with our Savior. And the passage here borrows from that concept of union, so much so that the relations that Christ has, because we are united to him, in some meaningful and real way become the relationships that we have. Not only is God the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, he's also your Father. He's also your Father. That's the blessing to God. What's the sphere of the blessing? who has blessed us in Christ, who has blessed us in Christ. That's the sphere of the blessing we have. We can't say everything we want to say about union with Christ, certainly not tonight. There are many passages and many pages to come where we will speak of union with Christ. But remember what it is, by faith we become united to Christ. Actually, we're going to see that there's a union with Christ prior to faith. He has chosen us in him. An eternal union. An eternal union with our Savior in verse 4. But there is a union with Christ that comes from faith. That when we are granted faith in our Savior, we are inseparably bound to the Lord Jesus Christ so that when God lavishes gifts upon his children, as he has the Christian, those gifts come to us through the sphere of our Lord Jesus Christ. All the promises of God, all the covenants of God, all the lavish blessings come to us in Christ himself. All the promises of God find their yes and amen in him. He is the sphere of blessing. And more than that, he's the greatest gift, the greatest blessing itself. He himself, the Lord Jesus Christ, 
has been granted unto us. And friends, these are the assurances, this sphere of blessing, these are the assurances that these blessings will not fail, that the blessings of God Almighty to you, dear Christian, will not wane. They can only fail if Christ fails. Your relationship with God can only fail if he is to fail, because he's the mediator between us and God. He is the guarantee of that relationship. It's good to be reminded, isn't it, friends, that it's not the strength of our faith which saves us or provides us blessing. Now, don't get me wrong, it's good to have a strong faith. It's necessary to have a strong faith. But we're reminded this, it's not the strength of our faith that saves us, but it's the strong Savior that saves us. And a weak faith that lays hold of Christ, even as it were, grabs onto the edge of his garment... That faith saves. That faith provides the blessing of God. God grants us these blessings because we have our Savior. Thirdly, Paul speaks about the scope of blessing. He speaks of God blessing us in Christ with every spiritual blessing. I think we could preach a year of sermons just on what that phrase means itself. What is every spiritual blessing? It's beyond our imagination, is it not? Every spiritual blessing, everything that is good, every good and perfect gift, every kind act of providence that the Lord pours into our lives, not to mention all of redemption that Paul is going to focus on, Every spiritual blessing is granted to the children of God, not necessarily in equal measure and in equal measure at every time. That's not always how the Lord works. But he has blessed us with every spiritual blessing. And those spiritual blessings are in Christ. It's interesting to us, friends, isn't it? that when we think about spiritual blessings and all of them being in Christ, it leads us to the realization that there is no blessing found outside of Christ. So if we want to bless life, we need to find ourselves rooted and living and dwelling in Christ. And there are times when we are tempted by a course of action whereby we think we will get some sort of blessing and we can ask ourselves simply, can I engage in this course of action in Christ? Can I do it by faith? And if the answer is no, then we're guaranteed not to receive true and lasting blessing from it. If it's outside of Christ, if it's outside of the realm of, of, of Christ and faith in him, We can be assured there is no lasting blessing to it. It's a great boundary to us here, is it not? And lastly, Paul focuses upon the environment of that blessing. It's blessing in the heavenly places. Blessing in the heavenly places. Friends, we're not just talking about your average blessings here. We're talking about divine blessings heavenly blessings, spiritual and physical, the quality of which is from another world altogether. 
These blessings come from the very throne room of Almighty God, our Father in heaven. In fact, we can say this, all other supposed blessings are superfluous because we have blessings in the heavenly places. Nothing can surpass them. Consider for one moment 1 Peter 1 verse 4. We read this, that Christ uh, were being kept uh, through Christ who is risen from the dead, listen to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you. That's the nature of the blessings that we have which are heavenly, imperishable, undefiled, unfading. They have to be so because they reside in heaven. And heaven will not have that which is defiled in it, or that which fades, or that which perishes. That's the nature of the blessings that God has granted for us, dear friends. In other words, if we have all blessings in Christ, in the heavenly places, we have a sure and certain future. Not necessarily in this life. We don't know what will happen to us according to the providence of God, but those blessings which are more foundational to what happens to us today or tomorrow are kept in heaven by God for us. Friends, are you excited? Are you excited by the blessings that God has given you? Are you excited by the sphere of those blessings? Jesus Christ himself, our Lord, united to him. We have all those blessings made available to us. And friends, are you excited to worship God as a result of them? I mean, this is the very, the energy, the fuel for our souls. What God has done for us, who God is for us, should enliven our worship. Here, in our families, individually. When we approach individual worship, and we all know the reality of, of, of individual worship being hard. I think we know the reality of all forms of worship being hard, actually. Private, family, even corporate worship can be hard sometimes to get ourselves to, to engage our minds. What better way to engage our minds? than to think on what God has done for us and who he is and who he is for us. Brethren, we should be excited to be in worship and we should be excited to worship. And Paul now moves to the reasons for being excited to worship, why he is pouring out this blessing upon Almighty God. The first reason is verse 4. Then there's another reason, verse 5. Election, verse 4. Predestination, verse 5. Paul says this in verse 4. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before him. It says God chose us. He chose the Ephesians. We're talking about the doctrine of election, the cause of great consternation in the church at large. But for us, the doctrine of election should be a call to worship. It should be a call to worship. The idea of election comes from the Greek word here to choose, to prefer, to choose. That's what we have even as he chose us. What does it mean, God chose us? It means precisely that. God chose them. 
God chooses who shall be saved. He exercised a choice when, before the foundation of the world, that is to say, before Genesis 1-1 happened, there was a choice made by God unto the salvation of his people. He chose certain individuals, and he passed over other individuals, not choosing them. Even though all of us, every one of us here, everyone who's ever lived, save our Lord, were born dead in trespasses and sins, when natural-born sinners, by the decree of God, some have been chosen unto salvation. That is to say, those who come to faith in God were chosen by God to come to faith. God decreed that the individual sinner should at some point hear the gospel, be regenerated by the Holy Spirit, and come to a saving faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, and have the penalty of his sins removed, and he would be righteous in his standing before Almighty God. God chose this. That's what it says. Even as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. We didn't work. We didn't make the choice. God didn't choose us because he saw we would respond to the call. He just chose us. It's just a hard truth that it is. Romans 9 exegetes this doctrine in quite a significant fashion. We read this, Romans 9 verse 10, And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls, she was told the older will serve the younger. God chose them not because they'd done good or bad, because they weren't even born. Before the foundation of the world, their mother was told before their birth, the older will serve the younger. And as hard as it may be to our ears or to the ears of the church or the world, God's electing love also implies a hatred for others. It's the very next verse in Romans. As it is written, Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. And that's not God hating Esau because Esau spurned his birthright, though that is true. Hatred and love here come in the context of God's sovereign, free choice. He loved Jacob from all eternity. He hated Esau from all eternity. Well, if that's the case, and it is, there's an obvious objection, isn't there? God has chosen some, others won't ever have a chance to come to saving faith. And preaching the gospel to them is just cruel because they can never believe if God hasn't chosen them. Well, there are two answers to this. Certainly one we find in Romans chapter 9. God is at liberty to choose to love and to choose to hate whomsoever he wills. He is the creator. We are the created. Verse 14 of chapter 9 of Romans. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It's his choice. He can do it. 
without being unjust. He simply can do it. The second answer is that in election, we are presented with two realities. We're presented with the divine decree and will of election. Uh, and we don't know that decree because none of us knows who's elect. Uh, so we preach the gospel to all so that the elect can hear and believe. There's the divine will, but there's also the human will. And didn't we see this this morning, that for some their wills are darkened, and they choose, and they come with malice to Christ, they hate him, they choose not to receive him. They chose not to receive the Christ. They acted, they made a decision consonant with their nature, their natures being darkened, they chose not to receive Christ. They were utterly disposed to reject him. And that is the basis upon which they will be condemned. Friends, I don't think, I want to be careful saying this, but the evidence that God will bring forth on that great last day of judgment to those who have not believed, who are not in Christ, will not be the decree of election. So I don't think it will be. Scripture makes it very clear they will be judged according to their deeds. If their deeds are unrighteous, if they are absent of, they, they have no faith, they will be judged accordingly. Friends, this is a complex matter, and we do need to approach it with some humility. But it's there in the text. He chose us in him. But what is God's purpose in choosing us? God's purpose in choosing us is this, that we should be holy and blameless before him. Two ideas here, holy and blameless. Uh, one of them speaks of a state, and one of them speaks of a status. Holiness is state. Uh, righteous, uh, blamelessness is the language of righteousness. That's status. We've been chosen unto holiness. God's choice will ultimately make us holy state. It'll also make us blameless, righteous, a status, a righteous standing before God. But we're not just given a state change and a status change. We are then to enact. We are to act out of those status changes. Redemption calls us to live in what? And holy and blameless fashion. We are made those things so we might live according to those things. Doctrine directing our life once again. The doctrine of election, friends, under salvation is mysterious but just, fully gracious, with no reference to us. It's simply the gracious choice of God. Friend, if you're a Christian here this night, you are the object of God's free choice under salvation. He chose you in Christ. What's going to be your response to that good news? We can ask the same question of the next doctrine, verse 5, predestination. Praise to the Father for the blessings of predestination. Election, verse 4, predestination, verse 5. Now, what's the difference between election and predestination? Notice here in verse 5, there's the language of purpose. 
he predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ according to the purpose of his will. We've got ideas here of design and design that is producing something. Election and predestination are often used interchangeably. The difference between them is narrow. Election refers simply to God's sovereign choice to elect some unto everlasting life. Predestination is slightly broader and reflects upon the fact that God directs all things pertaining to salvation as we see in the text before us. He predestined us, for example, for what? For adoption. So predestination is the broader view of salvation. Election is the narrow view of salvation. Predestination is God's decree and working out of all matters with respect to your salvation, dear friend. And that predestination, what was the context of it? In love. Last words of verse 4 should be the first words of verse 5. In love, he predestined us. It's remarkable because we can't really get our minds around the concept of, of, of loving something that, that, that doesn't yet exist. I mean, a child in the womb, we can certainly get there with that, can we not? But God's love was on us long, long, long before we ever existed. In love, he predestined us. Before the foundation of the world, he predestined us in love. The great cause of God's salvation is his great love. You see, election and predestination are sometimes chalked up by their critics as as cold pieces of business, mechanical, inorganic. Nothing could be further from the truth. God's love saturates his act of predestination. Here we see the heart of the Father revealed towards you, dear Christian. He loved you. Before the world began, you were loved, though you did not yet exist. In the mind of God, you did, and you were real. That's worth pondering, is it not, friend? If God has set his love upon you eternally, and it had nothing to do with you then, it can have nothing to do with you now. His love is irrevocable. He won't change his mind. And if you're truly a Christian, no matter how badly you fall away, if you're truly a Christian, you will be restored. Because God's decree of election and his predestination cannot be gainsaid, cannot be undone. To what end? Why has he predestined you? There's many answers to this, but the answer in the text before us is this. He predestined us for adoption as sons through Jesus Christ. This really sets the tone for election and predestination. We're not really in the courtroom of God now. We're in the living room. If we can speak in those terms. Justification is all about the courtroom of God. Adoption's about being brought into the living room of God, the family of God, the people of God.
We're talking about a familial relationship. Adoption as sons in Christ Jesus, there's the, or through Christ, there's the union language again. Dear Christian, God has chosen you to be a member of his family. That's really important. And just as he loves his son, the last word of verse 6, which we'll come to briefly in a moment, is beloved. He's blessed us in the beloved. Our union with Christ means that we also are beloved of the Father. Paul writes this way so that you might know you are beloved of the Father. Beloved from before the foundation of the world. Beloved at the incarnation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Beloved at the cross. Beloved today. Beloved for all eternity. That's what the Christian possesses in and through Christ Jesus. The belovedness of Christ from his Father to him is shared with his brothers and his sisters, the children of God. It's hardly surprising that Paul's last note in verse 6 And it really should be our first and our last notes in everything we do is once again worship. We read that all this has been done, why? To the praise of his glorious grace with which he has blessed us in the beloved. It's mirroring the worship and the praise and the blessing of verse 3, but changing the name of Christ to the beloved. God's person and God's actions to you in salvation are hereby revealed that we might be to the praise of his glorious grace. Those words need to be almost emblazoned across our mind, to the praise of his glorious grace. I want to ask you, dear friends, as we close, is God's grace still amazing to you? I hope it's not become a common thing. It can, but it can be revived. It can be changed. Does God's grace still fill you with wonder and love and praise? God's grace to you, friend, is the great source of your striving to be holy and to be blameless. It's the cause of your great striving to be faithful, to be loving, to be servant-minded, to serve each other in the home, your neighbors, and to serve in this church. God's amazing grace, friends, should be the energizing factor for our lives. He has changed us. We are Christian. Now behave that way. He's blessed us, we read, in the beloved. Just think on that, friends. Just as God has a peculiar eye to his beloved son, so now too does he have a peculiar eye to you, dear Christian. That's because we're in Christ. What a remarkable doctrine. What a remarkable truth. We're in Christ. 
and all that that means. And because of that, God has blessed us as his beloved. Friends, the truth is this. Nothing will separate ever will separate the Father from the Son, and nothing will ever separate the Father from his beloved. Thanks be to God for this amazing grace. Let's pray. Father, we pray indeed that your goodness to us will never become a common thing. Help us to strive against sin in our lives. Help us when our energies and our spiritual vitality is low, that we might press on because of your great goodness to us. Lord, imprint these truths upon our hearts and let it be unto us the true source of spiritual zeal. We ask this in our Savior's name. Amen.